This morning we're going to be looking from the Bible, big surprise, right? Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or if you have an app on your phone or other uh, device, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be reading through the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 4. And then just keep your finger there because even though I'll be going to other places, I'll be coming back to Genesis 4 quite often. And if you uh, don't have either one of those things that I just mentioned, there is a Bible in front of you in the pew that you can find it as well. So the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door." Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. This story that's probably well known to many of you probably raises a lot of questions as well, because we all have this very ingrained sense of justice. If anything has even a hint of being unfair, it drives us crazy. It's human nature. But there is one area in which this even becomes worse, sibling rivalry. Whether between brothers and sisters, brothers or sisters against each other, it really doesn't matter. And even probably just a few days ago, you saw this happen. So-and-so got more presents than I did. I was counting. Or they got better presents than I did. Or maybe it was who you treated more leniently with curfews or dating privileges or driving privileges, to who got new clothes and who got hand-me-downs. Just ask any parent who hears the constant complaining of who got more dessert than the other person. So inner Cain and Abel, the world's first siblings, and a story that causes a lot of confusion and debate in Christian circles. Their story is often misunderstood, and the central point of the story doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Why is one brother's offering to God accepted while the other's is rejected? 
A mere surface reading raises a lot of questions and requires us to study and to dig deeper. As with other stories in the Bible, uncovering the context in which the story is is critical. And so let's do that. We have Dad and Mom. You know them as Adam and Eve, right? And they've made a huge mistake. We call that the original sin. And they have plunged the universe and the human race into a fallen state through their disobedience in the Garden of Eden. And so they are kicked out of paradise where life was fruitful and without toil. And now the first couple is living with the consequences of their sin and God's judgment. Before sin came into the world, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. But it didn't happen until after they were banished from the garden. So because they were born after that original sin, each child born from there until the time uh, when time ends, we are all born with a sin nature. And instead of just taking my word for it, I want you to look at a couple of passages. The first is in the book of Psalm. Uh, Psalm is uh, right about in the middle of your Bible, and we're going to start at verse uh, chapter 51. This is written by King David. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, don't misinterpret that. David is not saying that my mom had some kind of an illegitimate affair, and that's how I was born. What he's saying is, my sin nature began at the time I was conceived, as it does with all people. If you'll go over just a couple of chapters to Psalm 58, And verse 3, this is again King David speaking, and he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Again, showing that this starts at birth. I've often said that you don't have to teach children how to sin or to be selfish, right? No child wakes up at 3 in the morning with a wet diaper or hungry and thinks to themselves, I shouldn't cry now, mom needs to sleep right? They cry when they want to cry. You don't have to teach your toddler how to grab something away from somebody else and say, mine. They do it naturally. If you'll go over just two books, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, go over to the right two books, and this is in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 20. This is written by King David's son, Solomon. And he says, surely there is not a righteous man, or I'm going to say righteous man or woman, because this is not talking about a specific sex, but of mankind. So surely there is not a righteous man or woman on earth who does good and never sins. And then the last one we're going to look at here is in Romans chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Who was that one man? Come on, class. Who was that one man? That's right. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men and women because all sinned. These two brothers are born from Adam and Eve's relationship. The first is named Cain, the second Abel. We're not told their age difference. They could have been born within a year of each other. It might have been many years. We're not told about that. All we know from the text is this, and this is back in Genesis chapter 4 again. 
looking at verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So far, so good, right? But sin nature is passed on to each person. And it's going to show itself in the life of these two boys, actually these two young men, whose early lives we are told nothing about. See, in this verse, we go straight from their being born to they are working now. One is a worker of the ground, the other is a keeper of sheep. Now, neither of these tasks should be seen as superior to the other, though many people read the passage this way, and that's a mistake. You're drawing the wrong conclusion. But still, these differing occupations are the perfect seeds for some sort of rivalry, or in this case, an opportunity for jealousy. An untold amount of time passes, and we arrive at this good day gone bad. And again, picking up in verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So the boys have given an offering from the, their line of work, and they bring the fruit of their labors before the Lord. And God likes one, he rejects the other. And this is the place where the trouble begins. What's going on? I mean, Cain brought this basket of organic fruit or or vegetables or grain. We're not sure what it was. And Abel brings some high-quality meat. Now, listen to this. Both offerings could be honorable. So a closer reading is needed to shed light on this subject. And here's the question that all of us are thinking. Does God have favorites? Does he show partiality for one person over another, in this case, Abel over Cain? Does God somehow prefer shepherds to farmers? Well, I hope that's not the case because I doubt if I took a poll here that we have very many shepherds or farmers sitting here this morning, right? If that's the case, we're all in trouble. And if the answer to these questions is no, and we know that God doesn't show favoritism, What was the real difference between these two offerings, the first we read about in the Bible? The traditional interpretation says that the difference between Cain and Abel is that one offered a blood sacrifice and the other did not. If this understanding is correct, why are neither we nor those two men told that they're supposed to give a blood offering? That instruction is given to Moses thousands of years later. And even if a distinction between the use and absence of blood into sacrifice or offering was in use at that early date, why are both sacrifices referred to in this whole passage with the Hebrew word that means gift or meal offering, not sacrifice? The answer to these questions are not as difficult as they may appear. Both offerings are described in Hebrew with the exact same word. Minha, M-I-N-H-A. And the purpose of a Minha offering is simply to give honor to a deity through a gift, and it's usually in the context of celebration, not offering a sacrifice to atone for sin. 
It can often be associated with an animal sacrifice, but it's actually more often presented as a grain offering. So the problem with Cain and Ain's offering clearly does not have anything to do with the absence of blood. Fruit and vegetable offerings are as appropriate for a minha as animal offerings are. So was there a problem with Cain's gift? Of course there was a problem with Cain's gift. That's why it says in verse 5, the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering. The problem with Cain's gift is Cain. He's the problem. Now, here's how I picture this going down. You have to give me a little bit of poetic license here because this is the way my mind works. I see Cain working in his garden, and he looks up, and he sees his brother. Again, this is not Scripture. This is my mind. Dang, Abel's giving another gift to God. I better give something too, or I'm going to look bad. Genesis 4.3 describes how Cain merely brought some of the fruits of the field. Nothing can be said about the fact that he as a farmer naturally brought what farmers had to give. But when his offering is contrasted with Abel's, the flaw immediately shows up. Allow me to go on with my thinking here. I see Cain choosing what he he will give as an offering to God. And as he's looking over his produce, he says, nectarines, avocados... Now, Mrs. Cain and I like our summer fruits and our guacamole. Um, I know, I'll give the kale and the kimchi. Nobody's going to like that for another 12,000 years. <laughs> or maybe lima beans. Nobody likes lima beans. They won't miss those. But Abel gave what cost him dearly, the fat pieces. Now, again, go back to the context of this. The fat pieces in those days were the best part. So he gives the fat pieces and of the firstborn of his flock. Now, again, let's go with my imagination here. I'm looking at Abel, and he's trying to decide which of his flock he's going to give. And he looks at this one sheet that he thinks looks pretty good, and, ah, oh, that one looks good. But, now you see that little blemish there behind the ear on the neck? No, not that one. This has to be my best one. I can't wait to give God this gift. He's been so good to me. Abel could have very well rationalized that he should wait until that firstborn had had its own flock so that he could be giving out of excess instead of from what could no longer produce anything. But he gave instead what cost him the most, the firstborn. The telltale signs are a contrast between a ritualistic worship and true worship that comes from the heart. In Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5, there are four emphatic marks in the original Hebrew language that are used in reference to these two brothers. And if I were to take this verse and translate it word for word in the same order of the wording from the Hebrew, this is how it would sound. And Abel, he brought, indeed even he, some of the firstlings of his flock, and some of the fat portions belonging to him. And the Lord regarded with favor Abel and then his offering. But not Cain, and then unto his offering, he did not have regard. Do you see the way that's worded? First, God looks at the heart of these men and says, I accept that man, and therefore I will accept what he is offering me. 
Or he looks at Cain and says, I see that man and what's in his heart, and I'm not going to accept what could have been a perfectly good offering. Clearly, the focus of this passage is is on the men and not on the physical characteristics of the gifts. It's difficult to see how the writer uh, could have made it any more clear that it was the men and their hearts and the condition of their hearts that was the determining factor in God deciding whose offering was to be accepted. And this became the most important factor in all of worship. And in case your mind is wandering, please come back. This is the main point. The heart attitude of the worshiper. If the heart was not found acceptable, the gift was likewise unacceptable. That Cain's heart and not his offering was the real problem here can be seen from the last part of verse 5 where it says, So Cain was very angry and his face fell or was downcast. Or literally from the Hebrew, it burned Cain greatly and his face dropped. That's a great word picture, isn't it? God's displeasure with Cain revealed the sad state of affairs in his heart. Instead of moving to make his his attitude right in God's eyes, Cain instead let it harden into murderous thoughts and even murderous actions. For the moment, however, anger hid itself in Cain's eyes, and he avoided looking God or anyone else directly in the eyes. Sacrifice in the Old Testament is not some pre-approved way of earning divine credit. For example, you don't follow steps one, two, and three, and therefore God is obligated to accept your offering, regardless of how your heart was when you did steps one, two, and three. Now, remember when you were younger and maybe you got into a fight or an argument with your brother or siblings, uh, maybe with a cousin or a friend, and your parents caught you? And they said, you need to apologize for what you just did or said. Were they satisfied if your attitude was this? Sorry. Or did they expect your heart to show that you were truly repentant? Now, because my family is going to be watching this once it's posted online, Linda, I'm sorry for the way I treated you when we were kids. And mom, did you see that I really meant that? The principle behind an offering remains the same as it does for all of our acts of service or repentance. God always inspects the giver and the worshiper before he inspects the gift or the worship or the service. God is much more concerned about the attitude in our heart than what we give or what we say. It's a heart issue. Now, many biblical scholars correctly look at this narrative in Genesis and conclude that Cain was a self-absorbed man and had an attitude problem. And this is what God was responding to when the two men brought their offerings to him. One brother was worshiping God from the heart and one was not. Something that only God can see, and that's probably why we have trouble when we look at this passage and we don't understand it, because we can't see in somebody's heart like God does. This conclusion is further supported when we read commentary on this event, and I'm not talking about a commentary that you would find in my office or Pastor Mike's office. I'm talking about commentary that God gives further in his scripture. In this case, Genesis 4 is commented on by Hebrews chapter 11. 
And so let's turn over and see what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith because it gives a summary of all of the characters in, in the Scripture, or many of the characters in Scripture, and tells us why they should be people that we honor and look up to. In Hebrews 11.4 it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. It's obvious that the words faith and better sacrifice inform or modify each other. Because it was done in faith, Abel made a better offering in God's sight. So by implication then, Cain's offering was not done in faith or with an attitude of worship, and therefore God rejected it. So the nature of the offering, whether grown in the ground or whether harvested from flocks, does not seem to be the problem. The problem comes from what was in each man's heart when the offering was given. Cain was going through the motions. Abel was worshiping in faith. This lesson hits deep into the lives of those of us who claim to be followers of Christ today. Some people go through the motions while other people are genuine. Today there are many people who go to church and think that they're true believers, but they are not. They may have been raised in the church all of their lives. They have strived to live a good life, and therefore, they assume that they're Christians. They may have all the right words and know a lot of the Bible, maybe even memorizing and be able to quote parts of it. And they've given their lives in service to others and may even have a history of giving generously to the church. But unless their hearts have been changed, born again by the Holy Spirit through genuine repentance and saving faith in Jesus... They are tragically self-deceived. This is one reason why churches are often weaker than they should be and why so many so-called Christians don't really live like you would expect a Christ follower to live. The gospel of God's grace needs to be clearly preached and taught so that desperate hearts stand a chance of experiencing life transformation and change. And you should be thankful and grateful that FAC is a church that preaches the gospel unashamedly. We have to proclaim the truth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the need for sinners like you and me to repent and believe that God in Christ has provided payment or restitution for the forgiveness of our sins on the cross. But when this is not the central message of the church, the church becomes weak And people are sold a lie and are just going through the motions. It becomes nothing more than a religious social club with some humanitarian efforts tossed in. But the Bible is clear. We are only Christians when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. For it is with our heart that we believe and are justified, and it is with our mouth that we confess and are saved. Behavior modification does not save us. Attending church services does not save us. Giving money and serving people does not save us. Even getting baptized does not save us. Outward actions are all insufficient. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." Only the kind of faith that turns from sin and towards Christ has the power to transform a heart 
and to bring it from death into life and from darkness into light. Otherwise, we are still lost and still living by our sinful human nature. And no matter how religious-looking or sounding someone might be, if they are merely going through the motions like Cain was, God knows it. Cain and Abel's story is a perfect example of God seeing the heart behind religious activity. Humans look at outward things, but God looks at the heart. Reminds me of the story of when the prophet Samuel was anointing David as the new king. And said, and God said to the prophet, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Speaking of David's older and more kingly-looking brother, Eliab. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows who is coming to him out of duty instead of faith, just like he knew that Cain was making an offering because it was expected of him and because he wanted to look good, not because he loved God. Cain's lack of faith was not only evident in his offering, but his lack of faith and his disdain for God and his commands resurfaced later in the first murder recorded in Scripture. Though God had warned Cain ahead of time about the dangers of sin, Cain let the sin in his heart overtake him, and out of jealousy and pride, he took the life of his brother. And if you'll go back again to Genesis chapter 4, we'll pick the story up at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. So Cain, the man who merely went through the motions in his relationship with God, revealed his true nature and character after he was called out about his empty sacrifice. Now this reminds me of a story that I heard a while ago. This is uh, something that happened in New Orleans, or as they say, Narlins. It was, it was in the 1980s, and it's told by a policeman named John Dillman. You see, there, there were these two men that had come up with this get-rich-quick scheme. And one of them developed a relationship with an innocent young woman, and he married her. And then while on his honeymoon, he was out, took her out for a walk in the evening, and right as his partner in crime was speeding by in a rental car, he pushed her in front of the car, and she was killed. And then the two of these guys turned in the insurance claim to get the money for it. The suspicions of the insurance company eventually brought these two conspirators to trial. And what struck this policeman as unbelievable during the trial was the total lack of remorse on the part of these two criminals. And what reminds me of Cain comes next in this modern story, pointing to the way the police kept interfering in their lives by pursuing interrogating and charging them, the two men complained that they were themselves the real victims in this whole affair and implied that they ought not to be punished but consoled. In this illustration, we see one of the worst aspects of human sinfulness, a refusal to be held accountable. Instead of responding to God in repentance and faith, Cain reacted violently He killed his brother. He lied about his whereabouts, and he responded with sarcasm to God when called on to give an account. We see the opposite of that in the story of King David. After he had committed adultery, arranged a murder, and then tried to cover up both heinous acts. 
And God called David to account through the prophet Nathan. And when he first responded, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then in his uh, famous writing of Psalm chapter 51, where we were earlier, but beginning in verse 1, this is what David says in response to God calling him out. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, we can look at that and say, well, I mean, come on. David sinned against his own wife by having an affair. He sinned against Bathsheba by drawing her into this. He sinned against her husband by doing this. Then he sinned against Uriah, the husband, by killing him. And he sinned against Joab, the commander of Israel's army, by having him make sure that Joab was killed. And he says, I have sinned against you and you only? Because that's where he had first and foremost sinned was against God. Now, we can follow the example of David and soften our hearts when we've sinned and fall at the Lord's feet in repentance and then receive his mercy and grace. Or we can follow the example of Cain and harden our hearts and live a self-deceived life and prove that we are sinful. We can become resistant to God's authority and brush off God and his commands with an attitude that is bent towards ourselves, just like Cain did. The contrast could not be more clear. One man worships in faith while the other merely pretends to do so. But who you are is far more important than what you do. Another thing I like about Cain and Abel's story is that it provides us with an excellent example of how to interpret the Bible correctly. Though there are some clues in Genesis 4 as to why God may have rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's, We can learn much more when we use that cross-reference in Hebrews chapter 11. It sheds more light on this event so that we can draw some healthy conclusions because Scripture is very good at interpreting Scripture because God never contradicts Himself because there is one author, the Holy Spirit. God used different human writers, but He inspired the very words of the Bible. And it's not as if God was up in heaven uh, doing divine dictation. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Here's God up in heaven. Uh, Moses, take this down. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you get that? See, that's not the way that the Bible was written. But rather, God used the very personalities and the experiences and the expressions of each writer to shape that inspired text into what God intended. I love these two verses from 2 Peter that tell us about how that whole inspiration went on. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 11 sheds brilliant light on the events of Genesis chapter 4. Now, though the story didn't end well for Abel, 
Remember, he was murdered. It didn't end well for Cain either, and he even had eternal consequences for this. Cain was once again confronted by God about his sin, and God set forth some very serious consequences. Cain was cursed. He no longer had the privilege of farming the soil, the, the thing in life that had brought him joy. In other words, Cain's sin robbed him of his joy. Instead, he wandered the face of the earth, driven from the life that gave him fulfillment into an emptiness that never satisfied. And in a very similar way, you will never find true satisfaction in life, in the life that you were designed to to find joy in, until you first find that in Jesus. This is a tragic story. Cain feels the, the separation from God that sin brings, and isn't it ironic that after he killed his brother, he says to God, I'm afraid that somebody's going to kill me in revenge. But God spared him that instant death and put a permanent mark on him so that nobody who found him would kill him. God is merciful to Cain, even though the mark would be a constant reminder of what he had done. You see, Genesis 4 is secondarily the story of Cain and Abel. It is primarily God's story. When we first meet someone, we do so by telling each other stories about ourselves. Uh, The first pages of our story that, that we might open to each other is our name, our hometown, just some basic information about ourselves. But as we move from acquaintances to friends, we unfold more and more of ourselves to each other. We discover the likes and the dislikes, the past history, the present struggles, the joys, the future hopes and dreams. And we can tell how much we know a person, how well we know them, by how much of their story we know. And when we come to love someone, we want to know every story about them, and we delight in hearing those stories over and over again. We're not content with just hearing it once. How can we come to know God? By relating stories to one another. God relates His story to us through His Word. And we relate our stories through prayer. You see, I don't read through this once and say, okay, got it, I know all about God. Don't need to read that anymore. I want to read it again and again and see things that I didn't see the time before and learn more and more about Him. And in the same way, I can tell God, even though He knows everything, I can tell Him what my hopes and my dreams are, the things that have hurt me, the disappointments that I've had in life, the things that I'm worried about or that that cause me anxiety. If we've come to God in repentance, we have experienced forgiveness from God. But for many of us, the experience may lack some of the poignancy that somebody like David experienced when he was caught red-handed and called into account face-to-face with God. Now, if that's true for us that we don't have that kind of experience, we can only come to appreciate such bold grace secondhand. And such poignancy is powerfully captured in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. I'm not going to read this whole thing, by the way. Jean Valjean, the subject of the novel, steals a loaf of bread, and as a result, he spends the next 19 years in prison. And when he is finally released, he's finding it very difficult to escape his past. On one occasion, taken in by the kindly Monsignor Bienvenue, he finds himself unable to resist temptation, and in the middle of the night, 
he steals all of the silverware, pure silver, and, and runs off with it. But he doesn't get very far before he's caught by the police. And the next day, he is brought back to the house to return those valuables. And he's startled by the Monsignor Bishop's response. Let me read this to you. Ah, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I am glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? My friend, resumed the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them too. He stepped to the chimney piece, took the two candlesticks, and brought them to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was trembling in every limb, and he took the two candlesticks mechanically with a bewildered air and was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. This indeed becomes the turning point in Valjean's life. And the remainder of the novel traces those reverberations of grace in his life. When we read this account of mercy and compassion and see its impact on the recipient's life, we are appropriately bewildered and awestruck. But how much more should we be in awe of God's mercy and his compassion? We can never know whether Cain responded with such gratitude to God though his initial response suggests that he never did. But it's irrelevant how Cain responded. What is important is how we respond once we are impressed with the power of God's mercy and grace. Heavenly Father, this morning we have looked at your word and, and have seen how we should respond in worship, how we should serve you with a pure heart, full of love for you, but we know we can't do this on our own. So we ask for your help, for your understanding and forgiveness and grace and mercy when we fall short. And for those who have trusted in, in you, these things can be done. But for those who have not trusted in you yet, I pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you, God, raised him from the dead. And then they will experience that same forgiveness and grace and salvation. And Father, we give from our hearts the, what you have first given to us. And we pray that you would use our offering as a way to reach others with this good news. Thank you for giving it to us to begin with, and thank you for giving us a generous heart and giving it back to you as our offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen.